backroom politics. And good afternoon out there on Radio Land. It is Tuesday, which means it is time for the best political talk show you've never heard of. It is Backroom Politics, live on Blog Talk Radio from a split-screen edition. I'm your host and moderator, Justin Russell, here in Washington, D.C. on Capitol Hill. Joining me as they do every Tuesday on the line is the former Undersecretary of Commerce who worked for, at last count, four presidents. He's a longtime Senate staffer, longtime Washington insider. He is the Honorable Alan Moore. Alan, how are you? Oh, it helps if I turn on Alan's mic. Alan, how are you? <laughs> I'm I'm still fine. <laughs> there you go. Also joining me on the line as he is every Tuesday, he is the retired one-star admiral from your United States Navy. He is the man that we know as Admiral Ken Carradine. Admiral Ken, how are you? Fine, Justin. How are you? Fine. Uh, obviously, lots to talk about. We're going to start off with uh, what is on everybody's mind today, the tragic events that happened uh, within the past 48 hours out in Las Vegas. Here's what we know. Uh, about 10 o'clock Pacific time, about uh, 1 a.m. here Eastern time on Sunday night, Monday morning, uh, shots, multiple Gunshots were reported at a country music festival being held in a section of the Las Vegas Strip called the Las Vegas Village, uh, which is right across the street from the resort complex known as Mandalay Bay. Uh, For what is now clocked at over one hour, hundreds and hundreds of rounds fired at an automatic firing pace out of, a, out of an automatic weapon, according to some in federal, uh, in uh, some close to the investigation in the federal government, uh, were fired just randomly into a audience watching a country music concert that had just started. Uh, 22,000 people in the area during the concert, and when and after it was all done, 59 people killed. Almost 530, in fact, exactly 529 were wounded in what can only be called a just a tragic and senseless act of just unnecessary violence uh, against people just out to have a good time that night on Sunday. Uh, the stories coming out of Las Vegas are, for as many as that are horrific about the event that happened, the stories of heroism and selflessness uh, and self-sacrifice in some instances continue to pour out of, uh, out of Las Vegas. Truly remarkable. Uh, what we know right now on the investigation is the assailant has been identified as Stephen Paddock. Uh, Stephen Paddock, uh, a um, 64-year-old individual out of Mesquite, Nevada, which is just north of, uh, which is about an hour north of Las Vegas. Uh, He just, he fired shots from the 30s, from a suite that he had rented from the 32nd floor at the Mandalay Bay Resort Casino. Uh, He is um, an odd man, not what many thought would be the individual that would uh, conduct such a horrific uh, act of violence, but that is who we have. Um, they are still investigating. They found dozens, and when I say dozens, I mean like three or four dozen uh, 
weapons and thousands and thousands of rounds of ammunition in his vehicle, in his house in uh, in Mesquite, Nevada, and then an additional house uh, up in the northern part of the state. Uh, they also found uh, explosive materials in his vehicle, uh, which was parked uh, in the area which had been which had been found by Las Vegas Metropolitan Police. Uh, but just a tragic, tragic event uh, mm-hmm. after weeks of seeing tragedy and devastation as a result of the hurricanes, this happens. Motive is still under investigation. The motive is still unclear. Uh, there are stories floating around from, his, from the odd where the uh, father of the assailant was, in fact, at one time an escaped bank robber who was on the uh, FBI's 10 most wanted list back in the late 60s, early 70s, uh, to the obscure that nobody that was around him, none of his neighbors, his family, have all said that they are just as uh, stunned that he would be able to do something like this as they are just shocked at the level of violence that he brought on that night and Sunday. Um, that is the latest, and obviously we're going to discuss some of the other details as we go forward, but uh, Alan Moore, when you woke up on Monday morning, you, you see this. What what goes through your mind? Um, <laughs> I heard it on the radio. It, was, it, it woke me up on the radio, and I was suddenly wide awake and flipped on the TV and thought, what in the hell now? And initially, the, the tendency these days is to think: is this is this another terrorist? Uh, well, is it is it a terrorist attack associated with ISIS or Al Qaeda? Um, uh, we, we can one can argue, and there are people who who choose to uh, about what it means to what, what what is terrorism. We don't need to have that debate. We can simply agree that this person brought uh, a reign of terror to 20,000 plus people. Um, And, and uh, the scope of it was horrific, the kinds of weaponry. And as you mentioned, the number, the sheer number of weapons, there were 23 guns in the, in the hotel room. Um, And he, he obviously got off, presumably thousands of rounds of ammunition. Um, and and uh, he was about 400 yards away from the crowd, but since he wasn't aiming for anyone in particular, all he had to do was shoot into the crowd to create terror and do enormous damage physically, uh, psychologically uh, to, to all of those people. Um, we're still trying to find out. The, the authorities are still finding out so far with, with uh, no real success or none that's been reported about what his motives were. He didn't have a history. He didn't have a history yeah. of political involvement, of, of uh, religious uh, zealotry of some sort or, or another. There, there weren't health issues. He had, he had resources. He owned houses. He, he, he was a heavy-duty gambler, apparently, um, but supposedly still had, uh, by his brother's account, uh, a couple of million dollars. I mean, this is uh, this is a. They're all head scratchers in their way, but at least sometimes people have a set of beliefs that seem to drive them, or they're listening 
the folks encouraging them to create as much fear uh, and havoc as they possibly can. Um, this guy didn't so far uh, have any of that. So all you all you could find yourself feeling was, oh my God, what next? How horrible! I wonder if I knew anyone. Um, uh, and how grotesque and terrible for those who did know people, family yeah. and friends. Um, right. And, uh, you know, and, 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 and what, what can we do? What should we do um, in the, in the face of still another wanton uh, attack using basically automatic weapons? Yeah. Uh, I'm Ken. Uh, you know, I, I can tell you that I, I literally got awoken by the uh, AP alert that happened. I, I literally woke up at about uh, 2 a.m. and watched it nonstop. But when I don't know if you saw it during overnight or if you woke up in the morning to this, what goes through your mind when you see this type of just senseless violence? Uh, I woke up in the morning to it, um, and... Um... What goes through my mind is is um, well, well here we go again, and that 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 it's a banner for a lot of things. One, um, this this person as Al, as Alan has so eloquently described him, um, you know, does not seem to be associated with any foreign terrorist organization. That's the first thing I thought of as well, and um, and you know from all from all you know practical perspectives he seemed to be living a pretty good and normal life um better than normal and uh and, and good you know he had i don't know there are many people that got over a million dollars in in assets or in the bank so this guy's doing pretty well and um the thing that i i think is is hopefully is going to happen is that we're gonna you know we're gonna once again try and have a serious conversation about about gun control you know, that being right. said, that that being said, you know, I'm 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 not anti Second Amendment, but well, we're, um, we're going to talk but, and we're going to talk about that in the next segment, Admiral. But Ken. there's got but, but, but there's got to be um, something um, that that some solution to this because you know those weapons that he that he had were purchased legally, but he right. he'd gone and apparently modified them to be able to to uh, uh, to fire right. in, in in an auto mode. Um, the other thing we're, that, we're, that I, I think that, that I think that I am I guess I am struck by um, are the um, the the number of, of newscasters that have you know that have said some 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 pretty profound and some really you know profoundly stupid things. Uh, I was watching Fox News yesterday, and uh, Greg Gutfeld, who is on the Five, uh, was you know was in the middle of talking uh, about what he would have done in such a situation and at that point I cut it off and you know if if Greg were around I would basically tell him what you would do is what everybody else is doing you try and find something to hide under because that's something you can do because you're scared out of your mind and uh, and as you know one of the few people on this call that's been under fire I can tell you you know that's the first thing you're going to do is you're going to die for something and uh, but you know it's just it's sickening to see this happen um, and uh, there were there was a group of young people on this morning, uh, four of them uh, that went to that concert uh, in a group of 25, and miraculously all 25 got out uh, unscathed. 
Um, but right. you know, and that was that was on top of these kids helping other people. They 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 stayed in it, if you will, to help people out, and they still got out of it unscathed. It's just it's amazing, absolutely sickening. It, Alan Moore, you know, we we heard about the actual response to the shooting, uh, which was a coordinated effort between uh, the Metropolitan Police Department there in Clark County, Nevada, uh, and the uh, Clark County Fire Department. Uh, the, the stories coming out of them responding were just amazing. The, th- the, the question I raised to you, though, is, um, you know, we've heard the discussions of our police are not uh, or our police are becoming too militarized. You know, the, the idea of uh, them using assault weapons, such as an AR-15, an M-16, an M-4, uh, the idea that they are having to utilize uh, more powerful sidearms, more powerful body armor. It, it, does, should an event like this kind of put that question aside or should it demonstrate the exact reasoning of, these are new times that we're dealing with, and this is what our our public safety officer are having to look at. Well, I, 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 it, it would be hard to argue that that we should uh, re- reduce uh, the armaments um, uh, of the police, even as we know that the armaments of people who um, would do ill and do harm. And, and create terror uh, are being enhanced. Um, uh, the, the, the challenge is to figure out what the rules are for the for the civilian population. Um, uh, I, I don't uh, I don't have any problem with with giving uh, trained um, uh, and and vetted police. Um, uh, any any anything that's out there, um, the real question is, um, and I, I'm sure somebody could say, well, are you talking about grenade launchers and stuff? No, I'm not. Um, uh, but but uh, uh, the 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 big question is, what's so widely available uh, uh, to the to the general population, and wh- what if anything can be done, should be done uh, about that. I, I certainly wouldn't, <laughs> wouldn't be suggesting that we should, uh, we, we should put arbitrary limits on, uh, on the police. There's no evidence I'm aware of, of, of that feeding a particular problem. There may be some, some, some oddball circumstances here and there. Um, but, but when, when we realize what, what they're up against, what they may be up against from time to time, um, you want to give them everything, everything we can. The real question is not only what what's available to the civilian population, but what other kinds of behavioral restrictions do we need to think about? That's the harder question. After after Las Vegas, already a couple of the hotels have started screening every person who walks into the hotel. This guy walked in yeah. with 23 different guns and thousands and thousands of rounds of ammunition and apparently a few other explosives because you can, you can walk in, you carry your luggage. No, I got that. I'm fine. And you, you, you're, he's there for a few days and he just hauls this stuff up. Um, there's no screening whatsoever. It's sad to say, but going forward in Las Vegas and I'm sure other places, you're going to see screening 
you know, we know what happened after 9-11. The, the, the upgrade in airports was significant. It was intrusive. Right. And it was necessary. Right. Um, and, I, and I fear that we're, we're going to see more and more of that, um, uh, even as Ken, we uh, – yeah, go ahead. Admiral Ken, Alan brings up a good point. You know, we've, we've heard the discussion, particularly since 9-11, but after uh, the, the tragic events in Orlando uh, just over a year ago, which was at the time the worst – mass shooting in the history of our country. We now have Las Vegas. But after Orlando, uh, after this event, does this put the spotlight on soft targets? And should we have put a spotlight on it before, or does that restrict what America stands for? Well, I think that um, there's always been a... um, an understanding that we have a number of soft targets, um, you know, in the, in the days or in the hours, uh, after, um, the, the shooting happened yesterday, um, there were a good number of people that they were on, um, the, the morning shows and they, one of these gentlemen was retired FBI and they talked about, uh, these national security events, you know, Justin, you and I went to one last year when we went to the Republican national convention. Um, right. I would say, you know, with all the security that they had, that would not be called a soft target. But there are events that 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 have a, a, a that gather a large group of people on a regular basis. Football games, basketball, like the, games, like the, like shopping the world, malls, like the World Series, yeah, the World yeah, Series, the Super Bowl, exactly. etc. And, and so and so, but you know, but the 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 point of this is, yeah, you can only have so many of those before you start draining the coffer that you know the, the the taxpayer coffers dry i mean you you know if you know, if if some nut like i believe this person was um in yesterday's event or sunday's event some nut um you know decides to to do something you know you, there's there's not a whole lot that anybody can do to to stop all the nuts but soft targets have been the study of um of security professionals for the better since, since before 9-11. Right. And, and Alan Moore, to that point, though, where's the line? How do, we, how do we offset the fear with security and vice versa? How do we offset the security with our public freedoms and not being in fear? Well, you know, it all depends on the individual circumstance. Um, and when I talk about enhancing security at hotels, um, uh, it's not every hotel in America that needs to to to, to put in uh, medical, de- uh, sorry, metal metal detectors, um, but ones in uh, in highly populated areas, highly populated cities. What you've got now Man, is a I guy mean, I mean, do we do, who did something do we put, that that can become a copycat. Right. So I mean, do we put? Uh, we do to... we put? Well, Alan, let me ask you this. I mean, are we talking about putting security screenings at, let's say, the uh, Waldorf Astoria in New York, uh, as opposed Probably. to the best, the Best Western in Des Moines, Iowa? I mean, wh- where does where does the line get drawn in there? 
Well, so one place it gets drawn, uh, I suspect, is uh, the with with some input from insurance companies. I have no idea who the, who insures the Mandalay Bay, um, and I don't know what their exposure is. Um, they've got a business problem. Um, I'm guessing that they've got a whole bunch of cancellations um, that 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 come to pass, and and they. Uh, just a lot of folks that don't want to even think about it or be close. Las Vegas has a whole bunch of cancellations. The Mandalay Bay presumably has cancellations. And I don't know if there's any potential insurance uh, concern or, con- or insurance liability, but there, there are business considerations here. Uh, and then there's r- rules and laws and public say and, and, and local authorities may say, uh, like in Las Vegas, my God, uh, tourism is their lifeblood. And if they say, folks, from now on, you've got to put these kinds of screenings in, we're, we're seeing a significant downturn in, 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 in traffic. Um, uh, we've got to do this to, to save the city, if you will. Um, you know, then you can see laws occurring. You can also see other behaviors changing. If there are venues, large venues, where people regularly gather, particularly sports events that are not domed, um, and uh, where there, there in some instances are places where nearby buildings have a clear line of sight. The uh, the uh, the the field, the playing field, um, and uh, I'm guessing that any city that's got the uh, high rises that look down on fields. Uh, is all of a sudden starting to think about a new problem, uh, not just during a sporting event, but sometimes there's concerts where the whole infield is is filled with thousands and thousands of people to to hear uh, to hear a concert. Um, if they're in a line of sight from a nearby building, um, is there any duty? Is people are going to have to assess? this stuff in a new way, just as we had to assess airline safety, as I said, after 9-11. Let me go to Ken Ken here. You know, going off of what Alan's saying, I mean, it it sounds like that, you know, we have to look at, you know, doing everything from putting up bulletproof glass or security zones and screenings, which they do at events like New Year's Eve in Times Square. NYPD has secured that venue quite a bit. Uh, but it's still considered a soft target. I mean, are, are, are we literally getting into a new view or a new state of security in this country? And does that does that make us lose some of our freedoms that we've known in less dramatic times? Yes, and yes, and and and, the, and that's unfortunate because. Uh, this is what happens when crazy people do bad and evil things. The uh, the saint among us have to take some measure to protect to protect the others. You know, I I, I have been known by my family for quite some time for not being someone who frequents malls doing the other Christmas shopping area. I think it's presumably because they know it deep down. I don't like crowds. That's not the real reason. But every time that there's an event like this, um, it causes the rational and even the uh, the cautious, the somewhat cautious of us to start thinking about the what if. And if you have a liability uh, for the livelihood of a business, you are 
you are uh, insane if you don't think in those terms and try and do something uh, to uh, to protect not, not only your customers but you know your your business and the livelihood of your business. Yeah, but but you know something, Admiral Ken. Here's here's what puzzles me: is every time an event, you know, we heard it a lot after 9/11. Well, we're living in a different world now, and then we heard it after Newtown, which called for everything from metal screeners at the entrance to elementary schools. To they, they already had all that. They, they, a lot of lot of and, school systems and, but, already but, had all that. But, and remember, Newtown right, but, Newtown's an outlier. Hold on, Newtown's an outlier because the shooter was the teacher's son. And he got a pass. Right, but what I'm saying, but but what I'm saying is, you know, we heard a lot after 9/11 and after Newtown and after Orlando and after any time, you know, any time we have an event like this, we hear about, um, you know, it's it, we're living in a different world. We're living in a different time. Are we going to be living in a different time after every event like this, where we ultimately become a police state? Uh, I, I, my hope is that we that we will not, and that we not only react, uh, we not just react to the event, but we start taking a real hard look at being proactive in, in these events. Case in point, you brought up Newtown. Okay, so in the case of Newtown, here was a person uh, who was mentally deficient, was known to be so, uh, and was taught to shoot uh, by a parent. Because it, 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 quote, calmed him down. Well, so I, I would like to think that, um, that at some point we would have been able to figure out um, uh, the HIPAA laws um, that would prevent an event like that happening again. But here we are, and we have not. And I don't think that that pushes us toward being a police state. I think what that does is it basically screams – Okay, if someone's not all there on the record as being, um, um, uh, you know, um, mentally uh, stable, then you probably shouldn't be putting high-powered uh, weapons and ammunition in their hands. But so we're, we're not right learning. Now on the we're, line. Not, we're, we're not. We're not. We're not evolving, and we're not learning. Right. Hey, but so joining us on the line right now, she is the former. Uh, legal counsel in uh, the great state of Ohio for then-presidential candidate Hillary Rodham Clinton. Uh, she is a bar-certified attorney in the great state of New York and New Jersey. She is uh, Sharmila Achari. Sharmila, welcome. Hi, everyone. Sorry I'm late. That's okay. It happens. Hey, we're talking about, obviously, the tragic events in Las Vegas, Sharmila, and we, we were asking the question uh, about, you know, are we living in a different time? Are we living in a different world? Do we do this enough to where it becomes a police state? You live in Manhattan. You live in New York, uh, which has, you know, which obviously with 9-11 that, you know, we live in a different world in New York nowadays. Does it, does it scare you a little bit that every time we say, well, we live in a different world, that we're going to see a more uh, police-like state in some place where you live like New York City? I guess what frustrates me more than saying we're living in a different world and we need more security precautions is that we are not taking common sense, the common sense measures that we could to prevent events like Las Vegas from happening. Look, you know, we don't know, we don't have all the information about the perpetrator and what his motives were. And from everything I've read, it seems that he had no mental health history 
no criminal history, nothing that could have prevented him from obtaining guns and perpetrating this horrific, horrific act. So maybe Las Vegas could not have been prevented. But I think that in, in instances like this, when we think about the proliferation of these weapons of mass destruction, of assault weapons, of semi-automatic weapons, and fully automatic weapons, there are real measures that we can put in place to at least prevent access to these types of weapons. So even if this person had been able to obtain firearms of some sort, he couldn't have inflicted the mass carnage that he did. So I think that that, even though it's it's hard to to politicize these matters and it's it's completely understandable to not want to bring this debate up so soon. I, I think that this has to be a really integral part of the debate on top of, are we becoming a more secure, security prone nation? Uh, to, to answer Justin's original question, New York, I was in DC actually on, on September 11th and moved to New York shortly thereafter. And both cities were incredible, had incredibly heightened sense of security afterwards and and even now when i walk into the subway it's very rare that i don't see some police presence there but the truth is i I work within fitting distance of the former world trade center now the freedom tower and the truth is that despite all the security you you never know what's going to happen that there's no way to to know if today is going to be the day that something horrible happens and so i think that we as americans are very resilient in the fact that we we get up and we keep going and we, we don't let fear of the unknown or fear of something awful like this stop us from living our lives. And that's, I think, a real testament to the American spirit. But I don't, I don't know that just commenting on the fact that we're living in a different world and we're living in heightened, a time of heightened security is enough at this moment. Alan Moore, you know, I, I look at cities that have dealt with acts of terror and violence and, and violence in mass numbers, I look at London during the troubles with the IRA uh, or even with uh, radical Muslim movements inside that country. Uh, I look at Tel Aviv and Israel, and I look at how they've done with it. Uh, even, I'll even bring up Moscow with the Chechen rebels uh, and how they've dealt with it. Uh, but one of the things that has made American cities, particularly large American cities like New York, Los Angeles, Miami, Chicago, Washington, D.C., is the fact that you, you don't get that sense of, uh, you know, that, that, that police, overbearing police presence there. At the same time, you feel that, 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 that liberty and freedom, there's also got to be a sense of it's not just complete and total uh, without risk or without security. How do we look at like how London does it and Tel Aviv does it versus here? And is that a realistic comparison? Can we do that? Well, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't know uh, what London is like these days beyond the fact that they have apparently tens of thousands of cameras everywhere. So Mm -hmm. what they're trying to do is, is let people know that if you're going to, if you're going to do something and try to get away with it, we have a very good chance of, of finding you, of identifying you. Um, God knows what the challenges must be to deal with the millions of hours of, 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 of pictures and so on. But anyway, um, 
it, it's I, I have not been in London in recent times to get the feeling that you're describing, but I remember when I first started seeing um, the police with flak jackets um, and automatic weapons in American airports, that freaked me out because that was something that I had never seen before. I mean, I say it freaked me out. It, it just, it startled me. And then it s- sorrowed me. It, it, it depressed me because I realized that was the world we are now living in. I, I don't, I don't, I don't, you, you use the phrase police state. I, I think we're a million miles from a police state. What we are though is in a hugely enhanced a security environment that, as Ken points out, is a massive drain on uh, on, on public uh, resources, and what a waste! Given all the needs in uh, in this country and every other, that we have to spend so much money to to staff, to train, to equip, um, and then monitor um, uh, all of this stuff. It's it's just really really a sad uh, testament to the times and and i don't and i don't see how how we get out of that i i don't see how years from now we say oh man everybody loves each other now there's no more risk we just internalize it we build it into into public budgets which are already overstressed and strained in 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 virtually every way and in almost every jurisdiction from the federal government uh, on down. Um, It's just uh, uh, a highly unfortunate fact of life uh, uh, in, in, in modern society. And even then every jurisdiction has to decide, are we doing enough? Are we doing enough? Do we need more equipment? Do we need more cameras? Do we need more people? And and everybody is trying to make you a know, judgment, and everybody's living within whatever financial constraints uh, exist uh, you know, I, in, in that per- particular jurisdiction. You know, Alan, I want I want to point out that you know the uh, the city of Tampa, Florida, for example, had a had uh, a prototype in Ebor in the Ebor City section of Tampa. They had set up a very London esque type of surveillance and face recognition program in uh, in that one little section of Tampa. And organizations like the ACLU and other civil liberties and, and uh, uh, public liberty and, and privacy organizations just sued the city of Tampa over that, and it was it ended up being decommissioned and taken out. Uh, is do we still need to be cognizant of privacy and civil liberty versus security, or has has that ship sailed? We live in a different world, to use the the term I've been using most of the show. Well, it's sort of yes and yes, as, as Ken said earlier. We we. Uh... We, we have to pay more attention, like it or not. That doesn't mean we forget about um, uh, individual liberty, civil liberties, privacy. We, there's a constant stress. It's just that the, that the, the chains, uh, sorry about a football analogy, keep getting moved. Um, and uh, what, was, what would have been unthinkable 10 years ago is now commonplace. And, 
you know, after 9-11, we, we passed the, the laws regarding uh, electronic surveillance, which became qu- quite controversial when, it, when, when, when America realized that, that Well, it's still, that very, a, it's still very history, controversial. History, it's still very, it's still uh, very controversial. Uh, you know, not, the, not the content, but the, history, but, but the history of all phone calls in America was, was, was being uh, kept and then used uh, uh, to search stuff, and that continues to be. A lot of people say, that's too bad. We need that. And others say, no, 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 we're not ready to go that far yet. But, but there's just this move of uh, when, when you're enhancing security, you know, you're, you're giving up uh, a number of other liberties. When we go fly right. on an airplane today, we're giving up some things we used to take for granted. And we all do it willingly, maybe grudgingly, um, <laughs> but, but uh, ultimately willingly because we but, know that we're, we're, that we're not a risk, but we want them to find people who are. I was just going to say, to, to add on to Alan's point, which I agree with, is that the other concern isn't just the tension between, net, between security and civil liberties, but, but being cognizant that, that the surveillance techniques are not always being applied equally. So it's not just a civil liberties issue, but it's sort of an equal application issue as well. Because as we've seen, these surveillance measures are often applied much more stringently and much more deliberately to minority populations or certain religious, um, certain religious groups than they are to others. But let me ask you a question, Charmla. If living in New York City, and, and this is something that has been asked by police commissioners going all the way back to under Rudy Giuliani's administration. I mean, uh, some commissioners who I've had a lot of respect for, including uh, uh, Police Commissioner Bratton, have all said we need a London-type camera system in our city to truly protect our citizens. Are you, as somebody who works in a high-visibility target area like by One World Trade Center uh, or the Freedom Tower, and somebody who lives in Manhattan, are you willing to give up a little bit of that privacy, civil liberty, walking the streets of Manhattan for that added sense of security is if somebody tries to do something, I know that they'll be able to get it through facial recognition software and analytical uh, assessment software built into surveillance systems. Are you willing to give that up? So personally, as an unaccompanied female in this city, I am. I, I feel significantly safer knowing that there are eyes on more corners and that if, God forbid, if anything were to happen to me or anyone else, that it would be that much easier to catch the perpetrator. And also having these cameras as deterrent is, oh, you know, not planning on committing any crimes myself. I think that they're a good thing. So, but that's not maybe that's a, a way that I, I part ways from a lot of people more on my, my side, political side of the aisle, is that I, as Alan exactly. pointed out, I don't mind giving up certain liberties and certain privileges to ensure collective safety. I'm reminded. I'm 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 very quickly. I'm reminded, in in, in uh, much like Sharmila, I'm I'm probably on the other side of my. Uh, uh, of of the my my political aisle and that said I'm reminded of Ben Franklin, uh, his comment with regard to you know people that are willing to give up a little liberty for security deserve neither, 
um, there's a <laughs> there's there's a balance here somewhere, and and yeah. um, and I, I think we're struggling. I think we're all struggling to find that balance. And okay. um, and and I that that this 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 is just the latest reminder that uh, things are not quite balanced out well enough yet. Very good. Well, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, when we come back, we're going to continue our discussion on the tragic events in Las Vegas. Uh, this is a special edition of Backroom Politics Live Sprit Screen Edition from Washington D.C., New York City, and Northern Virginia. We will be back in two minutes. Please uh, stay with us. This is Backroom Politics, live on Blog Talk Radio. We'll be back in a few minutes. Stay with us. politics. We'll be back momentarily. Stay with us.
backroom politics. And welcome back to the best political talk show you've never heard of. It is Backroom Politics, live from your nation's capital, Washington, D.C., New York City, and Northern Virginia. I'm your host and moderator, Justin Russell. Join me as I do every Tuesday, Admiral Ken Carradine, the Honorable Alan Moore, and from New York City, uh, Sharmla Anchari. Hey, um, we're continuing our special coverage of the tragic events that happened in Las Vegas and our commentary on uh, the uh, mass shooting that occurred less than 48 hours ago. Again, just to recap, uh, Sunday night around 10 p.m. Pacific time, uh, an individual uh, known as or identified as Stephen Paddock of Mesquite, Nevada, uh, basically unloaded thousands of rounds from the 32nd floor of the Mandalay Bay into a crowd of 22,000 watching a uh, country music concert and a country music festival down in the section of Las Vegas around the Strip. Again, 59 uh, individuals were killed, 429 were wounded. Uh, the assailant was uh, was uh, was brought down by a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head. Apparently, according to officials out in Clark County, Nevada, either just prior to or during the breach of the room he occupied by uh, Clark County special weapons uh, and tactical teams there in Las Vegas. Um, we, we, we talked a lot in, in, the per, in the first part of the show uh, about our thoughts regarding what happened and where do we go from here. But, you know, Sharma brought up the, it, and, and I think Alan, you did too. It's hard to politicize. It's hard not to politicize this, and I think that our thoughts and our prayers should first and foremost be with uh, those who lost loved ones and and those who were injured and affected uh, during this tragic event. And, and of course, I cannot stress that enough that all of us here on Backroom Politics, our thoughts and prayers are with those who lost their lives, their loved ones, and, and those who are still recovering from this senseless act of, of violence. But, you know, this is just over a year after the tragic events in Orlando. We have seen events like this happening almost annually now with tragic senseless loss of life as a result of mass shootings. And I am the first one to criticize politicalization of these subjects or these losses, but it, 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 at some point, and I'll start with you, Admiral Ken, do we not call no joy and say, okay, we now have to grow up and we now have to have a sensible discussion about gun control, gun laws, and how we look at firearms in this country? Uh, I, I agree completely. Um, and, you know, so I, I was visiting, um, uh, company headquarters, uh, some number of years ago, right after Newtown and, um, and one of the folks I was talking to who very, very decidedly sits on the, the, the other side of the aisle from me on, on just about everything said something I thought was really profound. And what he said was, I would have thought after Newtown, we would have done something. And, and my response back, you know, I was being glib at the time because uh, I hadn't had time to reflect on the conversation yet. Uh, well, what would you want? To, what would you like to do? And he goes, I don't know, but something. And you know, quite frankly, he's right. Um, I, I 
been been around guns, you know, my entire life. Um, you know, own a couple, um, one for self protection, one for sport. Um, but I'm smart enough to realize that um, that I am not um, the the norm for you know everybody that that has access to guns. Some people are out there to do just some really bad things. Case in point. Uh, on Sunday, Justin, we were sitting. I was sitting outside our favorite cigar lounge, and uh, one of the, uh, the, lo- the the regulars was telling me that uh, he recently had to go back down to north, uh, an area around the North Carolina Virginia border, because a year ago he got into uh, a verbal tiff with another driver, and um, the, the the other car was full of some use, and they shot at him 19 times, and they missed. And the reason he went back recently is because uh, one of those same perpetrators actually killed someone, and they were able to match the ballistics to some of the slugs they took out of this gentleman's vehicle. There's, there's a problem. We are in a very, very, very angry society right now, and that angry society has got access to some dangerous weapons. And we've got to figure out that balance. We really have to. This, this, is, this is not sustainable. And um, my, my, my fear, my dread is that there will be yet another event that we will call the biggest mass shooting in American history. Is that, let me ask this, Sharmanachari, is when we hear particularly those on the left talk about gun control, when asked what do you want us to do about it, we do get a lot of, I don't know, but we've got to do something. Is, is, is there specifics that we can put in place that is considered sensible and realistic on the left side of the aisle? So I absolutely think there are things that we can do that are sensible and realistic. Um, well, sensible, sensible, yes, realistic, I'm less sure. Uh, Justin, I was speaking to my uncle yesterday who is a true blue Nevada libertarian. He lives in Las Vegas. He's a physician, and he works at UMC Medical Center, uh, Mm. UMC Medical Center of Southern Nevada, Mm. the largest, the the only level one trauma center in in the state, in the heart of Clark County. That's where the majority of the victims were were sent uh, after the massacre. And they're still recovering there. They're still doing massive... And they're still recovering he yeah. went in. He went in on his day off because he knew that the hospital needed him. And my my aunt uh, also is it works works at the same hospital and did the same. But in speaking to him, he said, "You know, I've been a gun owner for many years. I enjoy having owning handguns. I enjoy going to the, the shooting range and using them. I use them responsibly. I think that there is no reason for civilians or the police." to be frank, to have military-grade weapons, including semi-automatic and automatic weapons. I think that that is the number one thing that we can do right now, that we can do tomorrow, so, today. So uh, to, I'm sorry. This is, part of, this is part of the challenge with this debate. Okay, so, so when we say semi-automatic and automatic, um, you know, just about every weapon out there is semi-automatic. If, if you've got a gun – and you pull, have to pull the trigger to make the bullet go out of the gun, it is, a, by default, a semi-automatic weapon. If you pull the trigger and the bullets mm-hmm. just keep coming, that's an automatic weapon. That's Those are, it's, it's against the law 
for people to have just to be able to go out and buy automatic weapon that requires special permitting. Special permit. Well, let me let me just go one step. Let me go one step further on that because I want to be I want to be careful with this, uh, Admiral Ken, and I just want to clarify. When we talk about a semi-automatic, it, a semi-automatic is considered that when you pull the trigger and you discharge a round, a the recoil and the action you don't have to cock and re, you don't have to cock and pull back Agreed. the hammer. Hundred percent. Agree. And yeah. so the only so that leaves that leaves two types of weapons, guys. And I, I'm not don't get me wrong. I'm just basically I'm just making sure that we are clear on our terminology. If we don't have a weapon, and most of those weapons that you just described, Justin, uh, semi-automatic, a magazine fed, uh, nine millimeter Glock, uh, Colt 45. Um, uh, uh, 45 uh, caliber pistol that we learn how to shoot in the service. The only other weapon that's not fed by a magazine is a revolver or a musket. Right, right. No, I mean, because theoretically, a pump action shotgun is not considered a semi automatic or a uh, or an automatic it, it, you know there are differentiators but but regardless of that and I understand your point Emma, it, my, my, my question though goes to and 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 uh, uh, I completely see your point on this the question I have for everybody and Alan I'll go to you is at what point do we start being realistic and you know we've heard the arguments of well, it's our Second Amendment rights to own an AR-15 and a 30-round banana clip. It is our right to have arms to defend ourselves against a totalitarian government that might happen in the future uh, against tyranny, and it's our right to bear arms uh, against all enemies, foreign and domestic. We hear that. But, but we have to be realistic at some point, Alan, that says, okay, this has worked for – now 200 some odd years do we really have to be fearful that if you don't have an AR-15 or an AK-47 in your house that the government is going to come in and just install military martial law all over the place I mean where does the argument stop being sensible like that so sorry Justin after (laughs) Alan I'd like to answer that using my my lawyer hat (laughs) all right I mean, I mean, everybody draws the line in a different place, um, which is uh, part of the problem. Technology has made these weapons um, widely available. There are hundreds of thousands of semi-automatic weapons, handguns, and and uh, uh, and and machine gun type or machine gun looking. Um, Uh, And then there are significant numbers of automatic weapons. Some of them were grandfathered when the law was changed in the 80s. Those are very expensive now. Um, But then there are these kits that apparently this guy, the shooter in Las Vegas, used. You buy a semi-automatic. You buy a $50 kit. You follow instructions on how to install it. And all of a sudden, your semi-automatic has become an automatic weapon. Now, what in the hell does that mean? What? How is that allowed? Okay, yeah, forget agreed. the argument agreed. of whether a semi-automatic should, is a good idea. And I'm, I'm not saying a semi-automatic is a good idea at all. But 
when you can convert for a modest amount of money a semi an already I would say controversial semi automatic weapon to a fully automatic weapon which I think is is illegal it is to own if you buy it, it is. if you buy if, if you if, if you tried to buy it in a store that is crazy that is just completely nuts and 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 yet it's uh, it, it, it's easily done. Why are why can conversion kits be sold? Why are they legal? Um, you know this. We 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 know that whenever any words of restriction of licensing and background check and restriction on types of weapons and types of ammunitions pop up, there will be a uh, a raging response from a narrow sliver of America. Most gun owners, for example, I mean, I hear numbers like 90%. I don't, I don't know what the real number is. Uh, support enhanced background checks. They say we go right. through the background checks. We're fine with that, but we don't really we we we're not quite sure what to do about the so-called gun show loophole. We like to go to gun shows. We like to be able to buy guns there, but we don't want potential terrorists, criminals, crazy people uh, to be able to, to go to a gun show and not even and, and avoid a background check entirely. These are areas where people of goodwill on all sides ought to be able to come together with some, with, with some kind, you know, kind of consensus on some of this stuff. There will be major arguments, of course, as to whether any of those things would have made a difference in Las Vegas or in Sandy Hook or uh, right. and, and the, you know, Columbine and so on. But does that mean we don't do anything? Or do no. we try to right. say, um, can't we try to do something? Can't we try to make it a little bit harder right. to get all of this and, weaponry? How is it that right. we allow, allow one guy to, 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 to uh, purchase uh, 40 or 50 weapons and, and we don't know it? It's one thing to say background yeah. checks, Alan, but are, is there any kind of volume check in all of this? Anyway, go ahead. Alan, let me, let me just pull that thought. And, and Sharmila, I want to get to your legal aspect, but we've got a couple of callers. Let me bring them on real quick. Caller from the 804 area, so <laughs> okay. you're on with backroom politics. Do you have a question? Yeah. Well, I just want to say I appreciate your opinion. I think I'm not really sure how intellectually honest you all being over there. I'm a gun owner myself, and I would like to pose a question to you, and I want you to be honest with no BS. Okay. Uh, what if John Kasich, okay, what if John Kasich appeared in a magical time machine, asked you to get inside and to stop Donald Trump from becoming president? Or would you get in the time machine, or what would you do if he asked that question to you? Okay, thanks a lot for the call, sir. Let's try another caller here. Before we question. 254 area code, you're on with backroom politics. And no caller there. Okay, go ahead. Go ahead, Alan. No, I was I, I was conf, I was confused by that guy's question. He was asking if sure. we would be willing to go back in time to commit an act of violence, Alan. It was a stupid question. It was a stupid question. That's why I got rid of it. So anyway, uh, so, you know, and we have to do this on a live show. Yeah, I didn't hear while, it that way, so. but anyway, that's fine. That's fine. Yeah. Uh, so, Sharmila, yes. you wanted to address uh, Alan's comment from a legal standpoint. 
Well, I wanted to address your question, your original question, Justin, oh. from a legal standpoint, which is oh. how do you push back against the argument that um, that we have a Second Amendment right to bear arms and that that allows us, that allows any American citizen to own a AR-15 or a 30 magazine clip or any of these weapons that can inflict a lot of damage. And I think right. that there are compelling analogies to be made between the First Amendment and the Second Amendment, right? We have a First Amendment that says that we are entitled to, that government cannot restrict an individual's speech, that, you know, that you cannot be prosecuted for your speech, that you cannot, that, 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 US, that citizens have the right to peaceably assemble. But I had a, uh, my constitutional law professor in law school made a very compelling analogy that our First Amendment right, think of it as, think of it as gum getting stretched out. And as you stretch it out more to cover more, as you know, we discover more and more ways that we want to express ourselves, holes start to appear in that stretched gum. And those holes are areas that, yes, they're within the scope. Yes, they technically count as free speech, but they're not covered by this right because we've, we have a society has, we as a society have determined that our collective safety and some collective value that we hold trumps every trumps an individual's right to free expression or to peaceably assemble. So, and that's the reason that we have that, you know, you can't yell fire in a crowded theater. That's the reason that we have laws against sedition or treasonous speech or hate speech. That's the reason that we have permits for any sort of large group to peaceably assemble. That's the reason we have time, place, and noise restrictions. There are, you know, having a constitutional right doesn't give you unfettered, um, doesn't give you the unfettered right to do that thing. There are limits that the government can impose and that we as a society can say, look, our collective values go against the implementing this right in its most absolute form. And I think that's to, um, to I think, Admiral Ken's point and to Alan's point, we as the 90% of people who seem to be on the same page about this, I have not heard a single thing that Alan or Admiral Ken has said that I disagree with. And so the 90% of us that are on the reasonable end of the spectrum really need to find a way to come together and to put put that forth in a way that our our legislators are going to respond to. Charlotte, that, that's fine. And you are probably right. I, I think all of us are on the same page when it comes to this subject in many areas. There, we might divert a couple of places when it, when it comes to uh, the ownership of weapons, uh, the uh, uh, divulgence of information, etc. But I, I think we're on the same page. But the problem isn't us. The problem is that when you say what you just said, the organization out in Fairfax County known as the National Rifle Association would have your picture burning in a trash can over that, <laughs> saying that that is absolutely unconstitutional, that is leftist liberal thinking, and you're the reason why people like Hillary Clinton and Governor Cuomo in New York want to run and confiscate guns, which is absolutely not true. I guess the question I pose to the to the group is how do we how do we get to a point especially as we're now seeing annual large number mass shootings and and we've now had two consecutive years of oh this now this latest one is the worst mass shooting in American history where do we get to the point where 
we all sit down and, and stop listening to the rhetoric and the noise of the political action and start dealing with this on a realistic basis. Uh, Can I go first? Admiral Ken, I'll start with you. Yeah, go ahead, Admiral Ken. So, so, uh, you, so you bring up a, a, a very, very good point with the NRA. Uh, as a former NRA member, um, uh, I got to tell you that the thing that has always amazed me is that the the folks on the other side of the NRA's argument has yet to be able to field a credible team with a with a compelling message uh, to get people to uh, in the NRA more people in the NRA to basically stop and go you know that's really not what I'm standing up for or what I'm paying for that's not what I believe in I don't believe that anyone should have um, anyone should have unfettered access to any kind of firearm that they want. I don't think most people in the NRA believe that, but I think it's one of those situations where you've got uh, group momentum and getting people to break away uh, for a more reasonable message uh, has not yet happened, but I think it, it can happen. Um, I think that uh, whoever said that, that, that a good 85 to 90% of the country feels the way that we are uh, we are talking on the show today uh, is probably true, um, but at the same time, you've got a good number of folks who don't vote the way uh, that they think. They they go with uh, what they hear on the news or what their neighbors tell them, or you know, or what or, or f- for whatever reason they do. But there's 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 a problem here in that the NRA's got a lock on this message. They do. And they've had one for as long as I can, uh, as I you know can, can remember. At one point, I thought it was the organization that I should be a part of as a as a gun owner, but it is not now because they 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 have they've transitioned from being uh, an organization that I thought looked out for hunters and for for gun rights to people that are just you know for lack of a better way of saying it, out of touch with reality of the situation. And. But and for the record, let me just stress this, okay? I, I've got I've got several friends who work for the NRA. I, I'm very familiar with the NRA. Uh, I actually support some of the things that they do as an organization. Their gun safety programs are some of the best. Their uh, their gun safety with children is probably the benchmark, and they do a great job when it comes to that. And it comes to the practical use of firearms. It's when they start getting into the the hardcore Second Amendment I agree. and 100%, 100%. the hardcore stuff. It, and, 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 and that's, that's what and that's when they lost me. And that's when they lost me. But but Alan Moore, how is it that we let an organization that that its primary mission is protection of the Second Amendment and gun safety get into the rhetoric of the far right? view of you know it's our it's our right to defend uh, against a tyrannical government and it's our right to own AR15s how do we filter out that noise or are, is america just that tone deaf they're buying it well you know it's it's it, it, there's a lot of reasons here but but um, cuz no it's not one size fits all um they they have been able to play on the fear that um the those who would 
place any restrictions whatsoever on gun gun ownership um, have have an agenda of wanting to confiscate their weapons. Now, none of us believe that's true, but there are apparently a fair number of people who really do think that's yep. true, and that argument is is enhanced by the fact that there are some folks that are on the extreme of the other side who really would like to ban all uh, all guns in America. There's a there's a there's a good solid core of such people. It's it's a little nuts if there's 200 million guns or whatever the number is that are out there that we could think we could somehow get our hands on them, make it illegal to own them, um, and 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 get people to turn them in. Um, we would we would be doing nothing else else with our with our uh, uh, police forces if that was our objective. So. It, there's there's the, the the rhetoric is backed up by different comments that different people uh, will will make uh, over the course of time. Now, having said that, if there is a great grand middle of people who would like to do some things that they think could be helpful, maybe have zero impact on a Las Vegas or an Orlando, but by making it somewhat more difficult to get a weapon and by prohibiting in a meaningful way um, the acquisition of, of what become automatic weapons, most of us would say, oh, well, that's okay. That's okay. That's not going to affect well, me. No, no, but, I'm suspicious of your ultimate motive, but what it takes – I mean, that's why we elect politicians – to represent us and to come together and try to figure stuff out. There's a, there's an enormous fear, obviously, among um, many Republicans and some Democrats from, from gun-owning states that, that they say, you know, I could see doing this, but it, they're gonna, I'm going to get hammered so badly by, Alan, uh, by Alan, the NRA or gun quick. owners. Let me just jump in real quick, Alan, because, you know, the number of politicians that I know from those states that you talk about that don't get an A in the voting record report card of the NRA say that that is political suicide, is political death. It is dead man walking. Uh, They are so hyper-focused on how much the NRA likes them, they lose the force through the trees, which I think is ridiculous. Am I wrong in that? Am I am I am I saying something that's absolutely crazy? Nope. Well, look, it, it's one of the more important. Depending for 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 some number of politicians, it's one of the more important metrics um, of their acceptability in, in their state. Um, even Bernie Sanders, as we we are we were reminded uh, during the campaign, had a mixed record when it came to gun ownership because there's a lot of gun owners in Vermont and. Right. You know, you you can't you can't ignore a a, a significant sliver uh, of voters in your state without making it a lot more difficult to get elected. There are other there are other politicians who are very assertive and aggressive uh, on this stuff, and it's not like they don't have gun owners too. And they'll sit down and talk to them and say, "Look, I don't want to take your gun. Um, I don't want everyone to be licensed. I want to make sure that." People who have mental health problems can't get these guns. I don't want um, uh, 
steel-piercing bullets to be generally available to the public. I don't want automatic weapons um, in one form or another to come into the hands of anybody unless you go yeah, through but- uh, some incredibly heightened level of, uh, of, of background checking and can establish a genuine legitimate need for such a thing. I don't know what that would be. Right, but Charmley, <laughs> you're the token Democrat on this show today, and I'm going to have to take the other side. Let me throw this at you. You know, we hear the story of – I don't believe – I can't remember if it was you or Alan, <clears throat> excuse me, that mentioned the – you know, if, if we had known that Stephen Paddock was in fact buying dozens, I mean over 72 weapons at, in mass and thousands and thousands of rounds – if there was a way that we could have flagged that, which there is, if there was a way that we could have flagged that and just had somebody from ATF or the sheriff's office or local police just knock on his door and go, hey, just want to say, is everything okay? You're, you're in a good place, and you're not planning to do anything crazy with your firearms. The, those who believe <clears throat> excuse me, that the government is trying to take their weapons say that's the first step. How do you defend against that? I mean, I I would sort of agree with that, right, with, with any other right. So I, I tend to compare guns to cars because I think that, and I think it's somewhat ridiculous, this is my own personal tangent, that we don't impose the same safety measures on gun ownership that we do on the ability to drive a car. They're both great responsibilities. Well, I mean, are you suggesting having a much, much stricter standard to access one versus the other? But I think that I do think from a, from a strictly constitutional sense that that access isn't um, I don't think access is a standard that you can that you can measure on. And I, I think that those people who say this is the first step would potentially be right. This this maybe is again contravening the, the views of my political party. But and I'm sorry that I'm not giving you a more interesting debate right now, Justin. But <laughs> I, I just don't think that that's the answer. I think that, to, to go back to your earlier question about the NRA, I think that, to Admiral Finn's point, the NRA is peddling an idea, and that's their product. And in order to really overcome that, as Admiral Ken said, you need to come up with an alternate product, peel away the vast majority of NRA members who don't agree with their, who support the the services they're doing for gun owners, but don't support the extreme stance they take on the Second Amendment. And that's going to take funding, and it's going to take political will, and it's going to take people actually taking action. But I think that that really is the only only way that you accomplish that. Yeah, but Charmela, I mean, we've seen alternative products. I mean, Gabby Giffords and her husband's organization is an alternative product. Michael Bloomberg and the governor's, have tried an alternative product, and it's yeah, still yeah, never yeah, yeah. discounted they're, they're by the NRA. They're not the people who need to be the spokespeople for that product. As much as I respect Gabby Gifford and as much as I respect Michael Bloomberg, they are on the record as being pretty anti-gun. Gabby Giffords, of all people, and her husband Mark Kelly, you know, not to, not to diminish their suffering in any capacity, but they are not credible advocates people who want who who don't want their guns taken away 
but also don't take, but also think that there should be but I'm, sensible restrictions sure, on gun ownership. That? They are not credible. You need real, you need Republicans. You but need sure, well, how do you people say, who how have do you real say, credibility with, the gun, with gun owners to be part sure, of that well, group, how do you right? Because discount? if it's people like Gabby Giffords and Michael Bloomberg, that's going to go nowhere. Sharmila, how do you discount Gabby and Mark Giffords? They own guns to this day. They are registered gun owners in the state of Arizona today. They have because, like four or five but, guns. But because that's not what people associate with them. Yep. Facts are way less important. And Justin, I have a business background as well, right? Facts are far less important than perception in all of this. You know, <laughs> yes, Gabby Giffords, I'm sure she owns guns. I'm, Mark Kelly is a former, former combat veteran. He's an astronaut. Seems like a real badass. I'm sure he owns guns and knows how to shoot them, but that's not what people associate with Gabby Giffords and Mark Kelly. They associate with her with a very high-profile victim of gun violence. And that's, Al- that's Alan, what the majority I- of people see. Admiral, Admiral Ken, you agree with Sharmel's take on this? Absolutely. And and again, what I said was what I said was there has not been a, a an organization uh, that has been able the, there's not been an organization that's been able to field a credible message. And Gabby Giffords uh, and Mark Kelly are not an organization; they are personalities, and they have personalities that that uh, Sharmila has so eloquently described. Well, let, let me being, let me just jump in real quick. Let me just jump in real quick. Mark, Mark Kelly yeah. and, and Gabby Giffords. Do have an organization, just but as again, Michael Bloomberg and the governors Justin, have Justin, an organization. Justin, you're parsing my words. There's not been an organization that's been able to field a credible message. Oh, I see. What yeah, okay. they got an organization. That's fine. Great, awesome. Hell, we got one here. <laughs> Alan, Alan Moore, you want to chime in on this? You know, there's there's ample room for the Bloombergs, uh, the Giffords and Kellys uh, of the world of, you know, James Brady and his, uh, the late James Brady and, and his late wife, they, they had uh, their own uh, entity. Um, they, there's, I think all these folks are saying is that there's, there's nothing sort of comparable um, uh, to the, to the NRA, which is true. Um, I don't know how you come up with something that's, comparable out of whole cloth you need all the help you can get the thing bloomberg has is resources so um uh, when it's not so much his name sometimes his name can work against him if there are people who say oh some new york um liberal republican democrat independent guy um uh, but but he brings money to the table, and the, one of the big things the NRA has is money. And it, if, if you need both messaging and you need something to counterbalance the the huge amounts of political donations the NRA provides, they spend big money in a handful of places. They also can presumably steer some number of votes. It's like this whole business of your rating from the NRA, or if you're in a primary and, and the NRA is on one side and, and, uh, and, and that's not your side, good luck. You're going to be uh, up against a message and money. The thing Bloomberg brings uh, to this is money. What we're talking about here, though, is trying to find 
um, some common ground. And I don't know that 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 uh, we we could spend an enormous amount of time trying to figure out a, a, how to create a counterweight to the NRA, or we could try to figure out how to get some leaders in the Congress to find uh, to find it in their their hearts and in their politics to 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 work together to say, look. There's a bunch of stuff we're not going to be able to do right now. Are there some things we can do? You know, the gun the gun show loophole is always popped up as one where so many people in America and plenty of gun owners say, yeah, that's crazy. Um, but what we want to do, what we don't want you guys to do is shut down the gun shows. So, um, so okay, how do we do that? You can't even get these folks to sit down and talk about possible answers. The the the, the, the gun haters want to would love to shut down the gun shows, and uh, and then there's I guess a handful of folks who say there's no way to make it workable. We don't have a problem with with <laughs> with background checks, but at gun shows you can't make them work. So. The, right. the the bigger sellers act like uh like gun stores and the smaller sellers who are kind of interesting and fun and quirky and come up with cool cool weapons and stuff they they can't they 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 can't afford it they can't they can't jump through all those hoops and we don't want to shut them down um it, it's it, what you need is people of goodwill to say where is some common ground? Find some common ground. Right. Two things, three things, not 50 things. Let's just right. find a few things. And then when the NRA says, yep, nose under the tent, this is, you know, one more step to try to get your gun, um, people, people can say, not true. And, and then uh, and maybe there are ways, I don't know, to humiliate the NRA. Uh, it's not easy. Many people have tried. Good luck. Um, Good luck. Yeah. But it doesn't mean you well, stop trying. Yeah, I agree. I agree. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, uh, we're going to shift gears a little bit. And, and again, before we go to break, I, I do want to say that, uh, and I cannot stress it enough, that we are literally monitoring the situation currently in Las Vegas, our thoughts and our prayers. Uh, and our heartfelt condolences go out to those who lost loved ones, those who lost their lives in the tragic, senseless, violent attack of uh, Sunday night. And our thoughts and our prayers are with those who are still recovering. Uh, even today, as uh, Sharma pointed out there, at University Medical Center's trauma center, those who are still have a long road to recovery, we're still with them in spirit, and our hearts and prayers go out to them and their families. When we come back, the president went to Puerto Rico two weeks after the arrival of not just one, but two Category 5 hurricanes, and the president managed to step in it again today. This is Back hmm. from Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio. We will be back in 30 seconds, one minute possibly, but we will be back shortly. Stay with us. Thank you. 
Can I just make two more comments on the on the gun stuff? Real quickly, real quickly. Yeah, yeah. One, the, the, uh, I think Sharmila made the comment that Americans are very resilient, and we're not going to let you know some horrible incident um, uh, affect our behavior um, in, in major significant ways. Most of, from, from, for I would say most Americans, that's true. For many, many, many Americans, and this was true after 9-11 and it's true after every tragedy, parents are freaked out. Individuals are freaked out. They won't get on an airplane. They don't want to send their kid to school. They're not going to want them to go to concerts. So you know, there will still be concerts. People are going to have to think about where they are. But, but, but there's enormous psychological damage that does occur, and most of it's hidden. Uh, people just don't go anymore. So I, 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 we, we don't have any way to quantify it, but there is long-term lasting damage uh, to this stuff. Uh, the other thought is that, that when we were talking about guns and gun rules and stuff, the states, and, and, and in some instances local governments, but particularly the states, also have a role in some of this, uh, particularly when it comes to concealed carry laws, open carry laws. They, they vary all over the place. Um, so it's not just the feds who have to step in and, and, and lay down all the rules, but there are other political jurisdictions that still do have a role, notwithstanding Supreme court decisions. That's all I had to say. Okay. Very good. No, those are, those are good points. Very good points. Uh, we'll switch gears real quick and talk about uh, what's been going on as a result of the hurricane there in uh, San Juan, Puerto Rico. Uh, in case you all don't remember, uh, it, there was two Category 5 hurricanes, uh, Irma and Maria, that hit, the, uh, that hit the island of Puerto Rico literally two weeks apart. Uh, as of today, still uh, somewhere around 49 to 50% of the island is still without power. Uh, about 35% of the island is still without any viable potable water sources. And telecommunications is still in a bad way. Uh, but what has happened in the past week is that there has been a war of words between the criticisms and the outcry from San Juan Mayor uh, Carmen Ewan Cruz and a Twitter war and a war of words between her and the President of the United States, one President Donald Trump. He has done. President Trump, in his Twitter attacks, has called out the mayor of San Juan and has basically called out everybody in Puerto Rico, and has basically, and I'm going to paraphrase, called the Puerto Rican people lazy and ungrateful, and they don't know how good they have it. Uh, at the same time, the mayor of San Juan did a press conference wearing a T-shirt that says, "Come help us, we are all dying." 
but she did it in a warehouse, and behind her, as she's begging for food and water, behind her in a warehouse, chock-filled with food and water ready for distribution. Uh, It has become bizarre. It has become uncomfortable. And as of this afternoon, Donald Trump brought together the governor and the mayor, the governor of Puerto Rico and the mayor of San Juan as part of a delegation of local leaders giving briefings on what's happening. Donald Trump says that, hey, Puerto Rico, you threw our economy out of whack, and you're going to have to just suck it up and fix this yourself, paraphrasing. The, you put our economy out of whack, that is a direct quote. Now we have an escalation of war of words, and it has just gotten out of hand. I want to start with you, Admiral Ken. You know, we've, we've seen the pictures. I'm on the phone daily with uh, folks with the governor's office down there as well as FEMA representatives down there finding out what the latest is, and they're making progress. It's slow progress, but it's progress. And yet we have this war of words between these two. Number one, if you're John Kelly, how frustrated are you that in a time where we're looking for somebody to really uh, just kind of pony up and be a true leader, how do you justify that and what he's doing today in Puerto Rico in the comments with what should really be happening? And can John Kelly really truly fix this problem? Wow. Um, so, yeah. One, one. I would not be John Kelly for 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 anything that you can possibly think of. Um, two, um, and all kidding aside, you can't make a you can't make a bullet 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 chocolate out of a pound of poop. You know, you just can't. Um, it's just really hard to do. Never seen it happen. Um, um, in all in all seriousness, you know, good leaders don't punch down. You know, part of being president of the United States, unfortunately, uh, and this is just from watching uh, watching Bush, Clinton, Bush, Obama, um, is when someone throws a punch, you, you kind of take the hit, especially if they're, you know, if they're not from another, another, another leader of another country. You just take the hit. It's part of the deal. You turn the other cheek, you just do the right thing. You know, we, get, we, we have spent hours on this show basically talking about uh, uh, President Trump's shortcomings as a leader. So I, I'm, I'm just going to end it there because I don't think I really want to give that subject any more dialogue. I would not be John Kelly. I can't believe he took the job, and I don't know that anyone could be so successful in that role. Yeah, and, and you know what? Ken, actually, you're right. You, we have all sat there and said, hey, you know what? We'll support the president when he acts presidential, but in times like this, he is not. Uh, Alan Moore, do you want to comment on, on, on what's happening and the war of words in Puerto Rico? Well, so, so to, to, to sort of build out from, from Ken's cogent comments, um, there's a term called grace. And yeah. Showing grace, being graceful uh, towards people who are uh, struggling. Um, people who are <laughs> below you in the food chain, if you will, uh, the, the the corporate chain, 
Uh, it doesn't mean you have to tolerate everything, but you don't punch down. You don't kick down. And this president, because he's graceless and a bully, sees and, – and, and somebody who got it into his mind many years ago that you never let a criticism uh, go unanswered. And you respond not just in kind, but you elevate. So you've got a, a mayor of of a of a city devastated by two hurricanes in two weeks city, at a time Alan, when Alan, it is. Alan, we're talking about an entire island, an entire island. No, 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 no. Of people, she's talking, but she's the mayor of San Juan. Okay. So right. she sees she sees her city. Maybe she's speaking broader. It doesn't really matter. I'm not the, the other parts of the island are far worse off than San Juan, and San Juan is a mess. San Juan also happens to be the the, the center of all of the financial challenges and the the basic uh, municipal bankruptcies that are associated with with Puerto Rico. A woman who's under extraordinary pressure. She's 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 dealing with with issues as a public official that are that are literally at the outer realm of what any public official has ever had to deal with. She shows her stress. Maybe she's encouraged to. Maybe she's not. Who knows? It doesn't matter. She's crying out. um, And and the president does not have the grace to say, um, we are doing our very best. We're devoting all of our uh, attention and resources to work with uh, our partners in Puerto Rico, and and it's it, we wish it could be solved faster than it is. But 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 please know that we're that that we're doing all that is humanly possible. Instead, he has to personalize and ridicule and criticize not only her, but all of Puerto Rico that, that uh, by being angry at her, he wants to say that the Puerto Rican people are expecting the federal government to do everything. You don't do that. And Justin, Alan, hold on, hold on. It gets better. Hold on. It gets better because during this briefing with the governor sitting literally to the man's right, and the mayor sitting at the same kind of awkward horseshoe-shaped briefing that that the president insists gets setting up. Um, the president literally called this out and said that you know we're getting an A plus. The federal government's getting an A plus from everybody I've talked to. And you know, had this been a real disaster like Katrina, hmm. and he looks at the governor and says. Hey, how many people have died? Sixteen. He goes, thousands died in New Orleans. If that, if, you know, we're doing a great job here. The fact that he even compared it to Katrina is just insulting, and the fact that he's called Katrina a real catastrophe versus what's happened with Hurricane Irma, I mean, is just mind blowing. Sharmila, yeah, go ahead. So just. Well, Justin, first, I wanted to dispute part of your characterization of what happened with Mayor Cruz, which is, you're right. I think that, you know, the reporting has shown us that 
supplies are not necessarily the issue in Puerto Rico. They had, they have food, they have water, but it's all stuck in the ports. And because of the lack of distribution channels, because there's not enough personnel from either the Army Corps of Engineers or from the National Guard or any other military resource that's helping them clear debris or even getting, you know, having, having the permission for ships to bring in rigs for them to be able to distribute these supplies to the far-flung areas of the well, island. Let me, it doesn't not, matter that Charlie, there's jump in. tons of water. Charlie, let me just jump in real People quick. Are still let me just jump in real quick. Let me just jump in real quick. All right. It, what you're saying is, is partially correct. Um, first of all, the shipping issue, that Jones Act thing, it was a ruse. The reality is American flag merchant marine ships have been lined up ready to bring in supplies. The supplies are getting in. What they couldn't do is bring ships into the port because the port had aids to navigation that were out of place. And the port wasn't navigable. It had debris. It had all kinds of problems. Kudos to the Coast Guard for getting the port back open, and kudos to organizations like Matson Maritime and Crowley who went above and beyond bringing supplies in. The supplies come in. Then you have the longshoremen that offload it and the military cooperation offload it. That is real. The real story is, is that they have all the supplies there in the port of San Juan out there by Isla Verde. And the problem is they don't have the transportation infrastructure to distribute the foods. Everybody blames the unions, the Teamsters, the uh, laborers, etc. The The reason why is they can't get the truck drivers in there because the truck drivers who live all over the island can't get in because the roads are blocked. And, and, oh, and, and they, they probably are dealing with their own – you know, their own personal devastation as well. But let's, let's say their let's homes say that might that have been damaged. Let, let's say let's say that's true. And even if the National Guard came in and brought in all the truck drivers they had, or as 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 uh, General Honore says, well, we'll just put all kinds mm-hmm. of Marines. They drive trucks. It, that's not, that's not the case. I could put a Marine in every cab of that truck, and they still could not get off the port property because the roads are blocked and if the roads are blocked and you can on top of the fact the truck drivers don't know what's going on because there's no communications infrastructure there's no cell phone there's no tv there's no power and that's what is bugging me everybody is doing a lot of armchair quarterbacking on this and I and I put some of this on the mayor because the optics of that presser she did in front of the pallets of food and water, the only thing worse she could have done was give her speech, turn around, cut open one of those pallets of water, take a sip and put it down. That's how bad the optics were. But, you know, if, we're, if, if people are going to talk to, about... To, 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 Alan's point, to Alan's point, for a woman who's dealing with this, or any, any elected official dealing with the scope of crisis, I'm sure that her first thought was not the op- – unlike our president, I'm sure her first thought was not what are the optics of this. It was a true cry from the gut, we need help here. We need more help than what's currently on deck. And I can't say anything better than, you know, Alan and Admiral Ken have said about the president's lack of grace, but can only really add that, I think that his response to Mayor Cruz 
is just another piece of evidence on the pile that shows his, number one, disdain for people of color, and number two, his need to self-aggrandize at all, at all moments, above all else. It goes back to, Alan, your point of the president continues to punch down. Uh, you know, is, is, this makes, hey, you're doing a good job, Brownie, look almost insignificant. Am I wrong in that, Admiral Ken? No, not at all. And, you know, the, the thing is, you know, there was a great article uh, written by um, – written about a, a friend of mine on LinkedIn yesterday, and it talked about um, the use of the military to respond. It talked about the fact we were sending all manner of ships and personnel um, down to Puerto Rico and that the process had actually started well before the storm hit. And, you know, and it went on to talk about, you know, all, all the capabilities of the, uh, the, uh, the U.S. and its comfort, the, the East Coast Navy um, 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 hospital ship. And, you know, at the end of the article, it did not touch on the things that you're talking about. And that was the fact that, okay, so we're expecting to basically do a victory lap uh, when we've delivered the groceries, but no one else, but no one's still eating. Uh, there's there's the additional issue with there being crime, um, you know, just outside right. the, the the just outside the city limits. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's you know uh, you know my contacts have described it as Beirut, you know, back in the 80s. It's yeah. bad, and, and so it when is. you say when, when when people say you know the president's helping out and he's getting it done, you know, uh, just getting food to the dock is not getting it done, and um, and the problem here. And we talked about this a couple of shows ago. I have no doubt in my mind that the response that Puerto Rico will initially see, the, the eventually see, the response that uh, Puerto Rico will eventually see will no, no, will look nothing like what Houston and what New Orleans saw after their hurricane events. And uh, you know, it, it, I'm and I'm sorry, I, you know, I am not one of those one of those people of color. That tries to make everything about about race, but the president has shown a real disdain for people uh, who are brown and who who don't have English as a first language, and um, and well, I don't and I think th- and I think it's, this is going to play out exactly as we predict. Well, I will I will tell you this, I, I will I will definitely say this. Look, there is no question that there are thousands and I mean thousands, of federal responders from both FEMA, Coast Guard, civil agencies like SBA, HUD, and then the DOD components that are down there. Uh, There is no question that they are working 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and they are putting their blood, sweat, and tears into getting that island just operational, let alone back to before the storm. They are literally construction battalions, Navy construction battalions that are on highways cutting away debris during an eight-hour shift only getting 100 yards because it's that bad. There are a lot of hardworking people that are down there that are literally putting their entire 100% effort into bringing relief and recovery to that island. But that is offset by this stupid war word war, the stupid Twitter war going back between the president and everybody in Puerto Rico. 
And it's something that he started. And it's something that he started because she really did not criticize him. She criticized the federal response, and he took that as a as a as a as a slight against him, and that's when it really kicked off. And she pushed back against something a comment made by acting DHS Secretary Elaine Duke. Absolutely correct. Yes. Yeah. 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 Uh, Again, again, making you're doing a great job, Brownie, look insignificant. But, uh, yeah, it, it, it's absolutely No, that absolutely won't be insignificant. That's part of our history. That'll always pop up, so we know what you're talking about. It's just <laughs> that now we're in a different place, and we got a new president who actually is fundamentally being graceless, which was not the, the rap on, on Bush. President Bush. He Correct. appeared to be kind of out of it. Um, didn't didn't really know what he was talking about, and he's trying to be enthusiastic and and supportive, um, and uh, uh, Trump seems to the, the president seems to be engaged in all of this stuff. He just doesn't know how to talk about it. He's got he's got no grace, and he has no ability to show compassion. I don't know if he has compassion or not. He just doesn't have the ability to show it. Yeah, which is remarkable because the one time that we need him to show compassion is now, and that's remarkable. Yep. Hey, we've got uh, we've got about 15 minutes left, and there are a lot of other stories I want to get to real quick. Um, but one of the things I want to ask, Sharma, from this point on, anytime we talk about Trump, your your mandatory automatic response is, huh, "Told you so." That's all you have to say. That can be your entire argument. Uh, Killing me. Is that just to keep me from talking about, to to keep me from making more points? No, no, no. Make all the points that you want. You have to start off every answer I I told you so. Justin, I feel slighted by that. Because I told told you so when we were sitting in Cleveland. No, I, I, so. I've been saying I told you so since he announced. Let's be clear. What we're but saying to Sharmila, what we're saying, what you're saying to Sharmila is, feel free to join the chorus. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, that's true too. <laughs> uh, but anyway, hey, in case you didn't notice, because we've been talking about a lot of serious subjects, I, I want to take a couple of minutes because there's other topics that we can brush on here in the next ten minutes. Uh, Secretary of Human Health, Health and Human Services, Bill Price, resigned because apparently he's got an affinity for uh, private jets. And he okay. would offer to pay back 50000 of the <laughs> – what was the final tab on that one, Alan? Over $10 million worth of private jets used? Well, no, no, no. It was – I think $1 million. <laughs> It, so it was about no, it was it was about a half a million in a, in in U.S. flights, and then it turned out there was another half a million for some European stuff, which were mostly on military oh. aircraft. So so oh, okay. he was going to give back about five five percent. I, I think one does, frankly, need to look at the the overseas flights on military aircraft a little bit differently than private charter flights. It's just how tone yeah. deaf. And what an idiot. And then he has his own words from the past on this very same type of issue where he was blistering um, uh, officials in, in the Obama administration for private use of airplanes. What an idiot. Right. Well, and and what's even more troubling and what's even more troubling are the the number of Trump supporters um, uh, in the Twitter sphere that are saying that uh, Price was a victim 
of uh, current day political correctness. And I, I, at, I, I had to I had to step in at that one, and I said that's spoken like someone who's never been a public official and and doesn't understand that you have the trouble you you, you have to keep the public's trust by being a good steward of their money. This guy, yeah, absolutely, and I, I'm and I'm hopeful that he's not the you know, that that he's the only one. But if he's not the only one, I hope the rest of them you know have to go the same way because that's not appropriate. Well, well, at least at least Secretary of the Treasury Mnuchin had the you know the common sense to so at least hey can I at least use a private uh, a uh, government jet to go on my honeymoon? He at least asked before he did it, which is why he still has a job. Versus Bill and, Price, and he got who is now, no 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 and he no got no Price 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 got permission. He doesn't have the power to just write a check. Um, he he got permission, and who mm-hmm. there's there's got to be more story here to. How that process worked, and who else was in the link? I mean, he, he Price was an idiot, but he was poorly served by some other idiots that he had around him, probably a <laughs> chief of staff and Alan, maybe a council. Alan, who's Alan? Alan brings up a very valid point because you know who it was. You know who has to prove that is White House chief of staff, which at that time was Reince Priebus. Which no, no, no. Again, that's the new part. That's the new policy. That they never saw these requests. That that's oh, the that's new the policy. policy. Yeah. He had internal HH. You know there are, there are HHS ground rules and procedures that he apparently went through, and probably you know, but but he probably had a chief of staff and a council and a couple of advisors who said make it happen, make it happen, and people made it happen, um, and uh, so he could then say this was all <laughs> this this was all done by the book. Yeah, the stupid <laughs> book. Uh, Charlotte, you want to go ahead and say it now? Go ahead. <laughs> oh, I told you so. Yeah, okay. Just, you take it for a test drive. Embrace it. Run with it. Uh, I thought I'd bring a little bit of levity to the show after talking about such serious topics today. And, uh, uh, you know, we, we, try and, we try and keep our, our heads on in this and, and try at least to bring uh, some positiveness or at least some fun into uh, the crazy world that we live in, particularly here in Washington. Hey, another story that popped up here real quick is um, is uh, apparently there's a an issue inside the vice president's office that apparently the vice president's office has a lot of anti-Trump people. And a story out of Political that posted today <laughs> says that uh, – uh, Vice President Pence's chief of staff uh, says that he wants to purge any of the anti-Trump Republicans uh, to uh, other donors to possibly look at a run for Pence. Alan Moore, is, is, are we starting to see the unraveling of what could be a one-term administration for Trump and just Trump just bowing out? And is Pence going to be the one to go forward in 2020 and Donald just take a back seat? Look, it, it has never been a, a, assured that Donald Trump would, would run a second time or if he did, that he would be elected. There's a lot of, a lot of life experience and world events that are going to occur between now and then. Um, people were shocked. Many people, including many Republicans, including Trump supporters, including apparently Trump family members, who were very surprised that he won. Um, 
and uh, including him, uh, just because I mean, you win cool. once, including, <laughs> including Trump himself. Just it, that's right. So, so, so it's reported. Just because you win once doesn't mean that that uh, a you you can win twice. And just because you decide to jump in and then discover, as this president has, hey, this is harder than I thought, or who knew healthcare was so complicated, and many many other things, <laughs> or you know. Or Puerto Rico, any, Puerto Rico is part of the United, or Puerto Rico are Americans too. And well, it's an island. Not only that, but 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 it's on an island that's surrounded by water. It's not just it's an any old island, but one that's surrounded by ocean. So, <laughs> so, so you know how much does he enjoy what he's doing, and how much will he be continuing to enjoy it? a year and more than a point two years from now when he will have to decide. I, I have no idea what what the, will be going on in the world or in U.S. politics that we see shifting. We, we see we sort, we sort of have the four-party system now, that the two Democratic parties and the two Republican parties, and who knows how how that will uh, will sort out uh, but between now and then. So I don't think anything is just starting. I can I ask Sharmila a question? Justin, to I, see. Can I ask Sharmila a question? Yes, and can I can I make a point as well? Sh- sure. sure. So Sharmila, <laughs> oh, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, Justin, I actually read the story differently, and maybe I'm not understanding it properly, but I read it as Pence signaling that he is moving further to the right and trying to align himself more closely with Trump. I thought what the story was saying was that. Um, his chief of staff is encouraging, is trying to coalesce GOP donors around a concerted strategy of ousting any anti-Trump Republicans in the in the legislature, such as Ben Sass or Justin Amash. I, 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 may, have, I may have misread. I may have mis- misread that too. I, you may be right, Sharmila. I, I think it could be that that is the case, which would be even funnier. Because then that gives credibility to people like Steve Bannon. And again, Charmla, go ahead. Test drive it again. Try it. Oh. Huh. I told you so. Yeah, thank you. It works every time. <laughs> hey, you well, want to hear another funny story from Washington? Well, yeah, Admiral can go ahead and ask the question. So, so Sharmila, is is there is there a push going on in your party to get uh, to get Joe Biden out of retirement to run against uh, Trump or Pence next time? I think that there is a real schism in our party. I think that there is a significant amount of people that think that while Joe Biden is wonderful, he's not going to be the salve that soothes the spurn, that he is too, you know, that he's too much part of the establishment, that he's too old, that he's not something new and different that, that people really crave. I don't know how much credence there is in that, in that argument. Um, or how much validity there is. I think that a large number of Democrats are still incredibly confused and that they feel similarly to how they did in 2016. This is not me because I very proudly pro Hillary, but where I think there are still a lot of Democrats who feel like there are no good options. I don't, I don't know that there's a stronger clamoring for Joe Biden than there is for Bernie to run again or for Elizabeth Warren. I think that uh, I, I don't so, think that, that that clamor is there yet, but maybe it'll come. So you, you know what? I'm going to take moderator privilege, and I'm going to paraphrase what Sharmila just said. 
two words, Joaquin Castro. That's it. Thank you. Mm-hmm. That's the correct answer. <laughs> I, you know true, I, I respectfully disagree, you, Justin. I, I don't think that the Democrats oh, concealed a person of color or a woman in 2020, as, and oh, it pains me incredibly deeply to say that. Oh, Sharmila, you're adorable. Really? Come on. <laughs> you can't, the Democrats cannot bring up a, a, a candidate of color. The Hispanic vote is going to be particularly with Puerto Rico and everything that's been happening in Puerto Rico and the disdain for the wall and everything. I think the one person you put up is a Hispanic candidate. Justin, we said that in 2016. The man started his campaign calling Mexicans rapists and and drug dealers and murderers. That's what I'm saying. Donald Trump has higher Hispanic vote turnout than Mitt Romney. That's true. Yeah, you're right. Darn it. Okay. <laughs> He's so easy. He's so easy. <laughs> no, it's only because we have about a minute and a half left in the show, which means that I have to – that's the only reason why I'm giving up so easily on this one. When, when, when the news isn't so serious, we'll get back to regular order where we can start going back and forth on this. Trust me. Hey, but um, we've got about a minute and a half left in the show. I want to thank, uh, as always – Admiral Ken Carradine, uh, the Honorable Alan Moore, uh, the always graceful and great uh, Democratic voice of the show, uh, uh, Sharmila Anchari. I, I do want to give a shout-out to our colleague, Dan Littner. Uh, Dan Littner is dealing with a family issue this week. Uh, we wanted to let him know that, hey, we're thinking about you. If you need anything, give us a call. But with that, we will be live next week, hopefully in studio, except for Sharmla. Unless, Sharmla, you want to come to Washington. I wish. You want to pay for my Estella ticket? Oh, Estella. No, but I'll drain wow. it. Wow, way to go. Yeah. Way, to, way to go, Secretary Price. Nice call. Um, Maybe. Why not fly down? Of, yeah, get a private jet. Secretary of HHS does it. It's good enough for for uh, Charlotte. On behalf of the crew here at Politics, we appreciate you listening, appreciate your support, and we will be live here at the National Press Club, hopefully next week, uh, where you will be able to hear the best political talk show you've never heard of, Backroom Politics on Blog Talk Radio. You can follow us on our Facebook page, uh, www.facebook.com slash backroompolitics. You can follow us on Twitter at backroompolitics, and you can email me at Justin at backroompolitics.org with your fan mail and also uh, to tell Sharmila uh, she told us so. That being said, <laughs> have a great week, America. We will see you next Tuesday. Bye-bye. This is Backroom Politics.